0: We're in Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56, that's our text. The topic we're going to find there, Jesus uses the occasion of Peter cutting off a man's ear with his sword to show the superiority of the Word of God. The title of our message, From Ear to Eternity, to have a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you for really the privilege of being here. I'm always struck by that phrase in the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that we would have ears to hear it. Uh, That's our prayer this morning, and hopefully every time we come to your word, Lord, that we would have spiritual ears to hear what the Holy Spirit of God is saying to our church and to us individually. Open up this text to us in a fresh, exciting way as we understand your arrest in the garden but also understand its application to our lives today in the 21st century we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name and those who agreed said amen there are a lot of famous swords both from history and fiction everyone has heard of Excalibur the legendary sword of King Arthur some say it is the sword in the stone while others say they are two different blades glamdring or and Narsil Would all be well-known to those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans. They figure prominently in that story. That's all I'm going to say because I don't want to come across as a nerd. The Apostle Peter... Too late, right? Yeah, I know. That's it. One of these days. The Apostle Peter had a sword, and it was made infamous when he used it in the Garden of Gethsemane to cut off the ear of the servant to the high priest. We'll see that in a minute. English lore has that sword being brought to England by Joseph of Arimathea along with the Holy Grail. In 968 AD, however, a sword was brought to Poland by Bishop Jordan, a sword which he claimed was the actual sword of Peter. The bishop's sword, as it is called, considered the true relic, remained in Poland and was eventually moved to the Archdiocese Museum in a town called Poznan. Did that sword belong to Peter? It's a falchion, a type of sword likely not in use during Peter's time. Metallurgy tests have dated it to long after his death. So if you're going to try and fake a sword, you could do a better job than that. Probably not Peter's sword. Why am I talking about all this? Because swords and not just Peter's figure prominently in this account of the arrest of Jesus in the garden. The disciples had at least two swords and those who came for Jesus had many swords But the most important and certainly the the most powerful sword in the Garden of Gethsemane was the one wielded by Jesus himself. It was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus asked those who had come for him, whom are you seeking? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am, which is certainly the answer to it. I am Jesus of Nazareth, but it, of course, is the name of God as well. At this spoken word, when Jesus says, I am, John records that the crowd drew back and they all fell to the ground. A moment later, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword because he has at his voice command more than 12 legions of angels. These verses describe to Matthew's readers the factual events of Jesus' arrest in the garden. They also minister to his readers an important truth the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is our preferred weapon in spiritual warfare and for furthering the gospel. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, be certain that the sword you wield is not of the world, excuse me. And number two, be certain that the sword that you wield is of the Word. And so let's take a look, first of all, in verses 47 through 52 uh, and the swords of the world. Now, we are told directly that the Word of God is sword-like in two New Testament passages, and the first would be Ephesians 6:17 where Paul says take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And then Hebrews 4:12 again probably Paul writing for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We see the power of the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, when it is wielded by Jesus at his second coming. Revelation 19 in verses 15 and 21, we read this. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of Jesus, obviously speaking of the word of God that Jesus speaks. It's not as obvious in the Garden of Gethsemane But Jesus wields the sword and is shown to be superior in every way to the swords of his disciples and his captors. Now, before we press on, let me briefly address something that always comes up whenever we discuss Jesus and swords. Christian pacifists believe it is always wrong to injure other humans, no matter what the circumstances And the same principles supporting pacifism, they carry over to non-resistance, the belief that any form of self-defense is also wrong. Since Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, and since he surrendered himself to the authorities without a struggle, are we therefore called to lay down all weapons and be pacifists for Christ? Well, in a word, no. One commentator puts things into perspective. He says this, In terms of following Christ's example, one must remember that his personal non-resistance at the cross was intertwined with his unique calling. He did not evade his arrest because it was God's will for him to fulfill his prophetic role as the redemptive Lamb of God. During his ministry, however, he refused to be arrested because God's timing for his death had not yet come. Thus, Christ's unique non-resistance during the Passion does not mandate against Self protection. Now, prior to his crucifixion, Jesus revealed to his disciples the future hostility they would face, and he actually encouraged them to sell their outer garments and buy a few things. He says in Luke 22:36, Now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. The sword in that scripture is a dagger or short sword that belonged to the Jewish traveler's equipment as protection against robbers and wild animals. A plain reading of this passage indicates Jesus approved of a sword for defensive purposes. The New Testament commends Old Testament warriors for their military acts of faith in the book of Hebrews. Moreover, it is significant that although given the opportunity to do so, none of the New Testament Christians nor Jesus are ever seen informing a military convert that he needed to resign from his line of work. Now, there's obviously a lot more that could be said on this topic of pacifism and non resistance. For our purposes today, we're not discussing whether or not we should all carry concealed weapons. That is not at all what these verses are about. And we can't really teach that one way or the other from these verses. What we are looking at has to do with how we approach and carry out ministry as believers who wish to promote the gospel. We are to put away any and all worldly means of serving the Lord and base our service totally on the word of God. In other words, relying on the world and its resources is being compared here to wielding a vastly inferior sword when you could and you should be relying on the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So you see the the comparison. A giant multitude of people with swords and clubs comes against Jesus. And yet as we read this, we see that Jesus is the person wielding all the power in this episode. And so beginning in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Judas, you'll remember, had left the Last Supper to betray Jesus. He may have first led this arresting mob to the upper room and not finding the Lord still there, taken them to their usual uh, resting place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord was not hiding. He was not avoiding arrest, not this night. He knew the time had come. In a few short but sorrowful hours, he would die on the cross just at the very time of day the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple So that he would fulfill the symbolism of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A great multitude with swords and clubs were dispatched, probably more because the authorities feared the crowds than they feared Jesus. The Lord was popular with the people. Only a few days prior, they had hailed him as he entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. John's Gospel says there was a detachment of troops as well as many officers. Based on those words used, some have put the number of men with swords and clubs as high as 1,000 or more. It seems unlikely that there were that many logistically, but there was nevertheless a substantial group that came to arrest Jesus. Now his betrayer, verse 48, had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, that's the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. To earn his blood money, Judas must lead them to Jesus and positively identify him. Remember, it was early morning. It was dark. They were by lantern light. They were in a crowd. And there was a time when there were no corrective lenses. People weren't going to lens crafters and, you know, getting glasses. Judas would need to get close to Jesus in that environment. He would have to touch him in order to identify him. When it says Judas kissed him... It's a word that indicates multiple kisses. It's that kind of kissing some cultures do from cheek to cheek several times as a show of affection. Italians are guilty of this sometimes. I don't know why because I, in my family, well, my dad, I think he started it. My dad didn't like to be touched. I could never kiss my dad. He would get all tense and start going like this and stuff. Consequently, I don't like to be touched. You probably notice I don't hug too many of you. It's not that I don't love you. It's that I don't want to touch you. I do hug people from time to time. I think hugs, you know, this is just me talking. Hugs are, you know, reserved for special times. If I hug you every week, then what am I going to do when something special happens? I just, I'll have to crutch you, I guess. I don't know. And I certainly don't want to kiss you. And I don't want to be kissed. And I know what's going to happen, so I'm not going to stand out back today. (laughs) Because I know somebody's going to want to kiss me. Or I'm going to get one of those dog collars and wear it while I'm standing there. So, but anyway... Judas came up and he did that kind of, you know, Middle Eastern, uh, Mediterranean kissing that goes on uh, as a show of affection. Now, Jesus had already busted Judas. He already let him know that he knew Judas was his betrayer. Yet, Judas proceeds as if he's acting in secret right up until the seizure. He he doesn't just come up and put his hand on Jesus and said, This is him. He comes up as if he's coming out of nowhere from you know, um, uh, he went on a journey and he hadn't seen him for a while. It speaks to us of how we can sometimes act. When we sin, for example, we act as if the Lord doesn't know what we're doing. We might kiss him, so to speak, in our devotions or by serving him, only to get right up and run to some sin that we are committing. Verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And we saw in a previous study that while God's providence was at work in the betrayal of Jesus, Judas acted by his own free will. He could have acted otherwise. Jesus was still offering Judas salvation. He calls him friend, and that is a term of great endearment. He knew what Judas was doing. He predicted it. He, he knew Judas was seeing it through, but he still held out hope for Judas. And why ask Judas, why have you come? The Lord knew very well why. Remember the verse I shared earlier about the word of God being a sword. It's a sword that penetrates the heart. Jesus was speaking a word to Judas that could have penetrated his heart, dividing between the soul and the spirit. It could have brought him to repentance. He was evangelizing his betrayer right up until the end. It's an example to us to wield the sword of the spirit no matter our circumstances to keep our focus on the gospel, on the need men and women and children have to be saved regardless what they might be doing to us. This might not be the best example, but it came to me first service and uh, no one attacked me afterwards, so I think I I can use it. But many of you are aware of a situation in Houston, Texas, where the mayor of the city uh, wanted, uh, well, she did. She subpoenaed the sermons of all the pastors Uh, because she wanted to see their stance on uh, the uh, issue of human sexuality. And it was this big uproar, and all the churches got together, and then they got one of the Christian legal societies. And finally, the attorney general of the state of Texas said, hey, you can't do that. Quit being an idiot." Uh, and I think it's died down for the most part. I, I'm, I haven't followed uh, the conclusion of it. And all of that is good. I'm not against any of that. That's, that's all fine. The way it all played out, I wasn't there, that's fine. But I started thinking, maybe I should just send her my sermons. Because, you know, you want people exposed to the Word of God. And, and, and it reminded me of the Apostle Paul when he got arrested Every time he came before King Agrippa or Felix or Festus whoever, he he didn't proclaim his innocence. He didn't bring in defense attorneys. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He determined that this must be God's way of getting the gospel to this person. How else are they going to hear the gospel except through a Christian prisoner? Now I'm not saying that pastors in Houston or that situation should have happened any differently. Please don't misunderstand. But I am saying that we should always think first about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and getting that word out to people who need it the most. That's what Jesus models for us. And then verse 51, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, the other accounts tell us it was Peter who wielded this sword, and the servant's name was Malchus. Peter needed some more time on the sword range, I guess. I doubt that he was trying to cut off his ear. He grabbed his sword, and in one blow, the guy probably moved, and he clean sliced off his ear. Uh, The sword play, however, is the action Matthew seems to want to focus our attention upon. A crowd of non-believers with swords comes against them. Jesus models for us the proper use of the word of God as a sword, while Peter mimics the world by fighting on their level with their weapon. One practical problem with relying on the world's resources is identified here. The world is always going to be more powerful than you when you fight on its level. You can't take on the devil and the world on their level. By using their weapons, they're going to wipe you out. Peter drew his sword. Earlier in the gospel accounts, there's a moment in which the disciples showed Jesus that among them they have two swords. What good are two swords in this situation against the multitude of swords and clubs? And what good, we would say, are carnal, fleshly, physical things in reaching a heart for the Lord? They're no good at all. Now, Matthew doesn't mention it because he wants to stay on point, but Jesus healed Malchus' ear. It's interesting to me, and it should be to all of us, how the Holy Spirit edits the inspired writers of the Bible. I mean, I'd have a hard time leaving out that detail if I was telling this story. I understand from the point of view of the four Gospels, not everybody has to tell everything, but don't you think that's kind of a major thing that happens If you're gonna talk about his ear being cut off, why not just say, and it was put back on? But Matthew completely overlooks that because that's not the point he's making. Now, what can we glean from that? It ministers to us to listen closely to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit as he leads us day to day. He knows what a person needs to hear or a person needs to see in and through our lives. We must remain open and flexible if we are going to be used to proclaim the gospel. And So we study the Word of God so that we're able to give an answer to any man that asks. We understand the Word and how it relates to various things. But we still have to seek the Lord for the particular way to bring those answers to particular people. We can't answer everyone the same way or else the Word of God is not being used to penetrate their heart. Many times, uh, I've seen it where somebody will ask a question, but it is not the question that is really on their heart. And you can spend hours answering a question that really isn't meaningful to them when there is really something that you can address. And you just need to be led by the Spirit of God. You can't prepare for something like that except by being dependent upon the Lord. And so let the Holy Spirit edit you. Uh, don't think, when I was a young Christian, I thought I could memorize answers to every question. And so whenever anybody asked me something, I was ready. And then you realize that you're talking to human beings who have unique histories and unique needs who many times don't even know what they're asking or why. And so let the Spirit lead you. Uh, Verse 52, Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword perish by the sword.'" To touch upon pacifism, once again, this verse is often cited as teaching that we must not use weapons because if we do, we'll only eventually destroy ourselves. But that's not at all what Jesus meant, not in context. Looking just at Peter, to whom Jesus was talking, if he didn't put away his sword, he was going to get hacked to ribbons in a fight with the multitude. We've already established he wasn't a very good uh, swordsman. He he didn't hit his mark. He was surrounded by as many as a 1,000 swords and clubs He wasn't Bruce Lee. Uh, He was going to go down. And so Jesus says, hey, you better put the sword away. This isn't going to turn out well for you. If you take up a sword, of course you risk injury or death. Everyone in law enforcement and in the military knows this, and they live with that choice every day that they have the uniform on. They do it because they have a moral responsibility to help those in need. Dr. Norman Geisler Uh, in his talking about Christians and pacifism, points out that we have moral responsibilities before God to help others in need and to stand by while someone needs our help because we have some kind of a philosophy of pacifism is morally reprehensible, he says. Uh, And so just a little bit more on that. Now Jesus told Peter to put your sword in its place. He didn't tell him to surrender his sword The sword as a weapon, has its proper place. You know that famous line of dialogue in The Untouchables when Sean Connery's character says that his assailant has brought a knife to a gunfight? That's what Peter was doing here. The real weapon was the word of God, not his puny dagger. Jesus was letting Peter, his disciples, and us know that with regards to serving him and spreading the gospel, the world's swords are puny weapons that will only get you into trouble. There's a saying that's become hugely popular recently, even though it's been around a long time. It's that one that says, keep calm, and then you put almost anything that you want to talk about. Keep calm and carry on was the original saying. It was a motivational poster produced by the British government in 1939 as they prepared for the Second World War. The poster was intended to raise the morale of the British public, threatened with widely predicted mass air attacks on their major cities. Although over two and a half million copies were printed and although the blitz happened, the poster was never publicly displayed and was little known about until a copy was rediscovered in the year 2000. The only one calm in the Garden of Gethsemane was the one person who seemed to have the most to lose, the one person who was being betrayed and arrested to his cruel beating and death at the hands of wicked men, men whom he came to bless and to heal and to save. These first verses, while telling the events, also establish the priority and the power of the word as our primary weapon in spiritual warfare and for the furthering of the gospel. It is at the very least a reminder to us to not borrow techniques and strategies and methods from the world in order to try to accomplish spiritual things. Something may seem like a good idea, It may even produce results on some level. But if it isn't led by the Spirit and substantiated by the Word of God, it needs to be sheathed in favor of God's wisdom. Using Peter as an example, we noted last time we were together that he was asleep in the garden when he ought to have been in prayer. And then faced with a situation, he resorted immediately to a worldly response fighting swords with a sword. It prompted Charles Spurgeon to comment, it would have been far better if Peter's hands had been clasped in prayer. Likewise, we ought to trust in the spiritual weapons of our warfare as more than sufficient, they are in fact superior. And that brings us to the remaining verses where we want to be certain that the sword you wield is of the word. Now we've already seen Jesus masterfully wield the sword of the spirit in terms of what he says during this time. He was definitely ordering the events of his arrest, showing the disciples and Judas and the soldiers the power of the word. Just how powerful was Jesus? Verse 53 says, don't you think I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now bear in mind that in the Old Testament, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers as they sleep encamped in a siege against Jerusalem. One angel, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers dead. The Assyrian army, the rest of it, withdraws. More than 12 legions would be over 72,000 angels locked and loaded, ready to come to the aid of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not call for angelic armies to deliver him. It's an example to his followers of things to come during this age in which he's absent from us. The age in which we live is to be one characterized by God being revealed as strong in our weakness, not strong in our strength. Who's the greatest Christian of all time? Well, we won't know until we get to heaven and then it won't really matter, I don't think, you know, we're going to have competitions like that or titles like that. But I bet if I asked that question, most of us would say it was the Apostle Paul. After all, Paul said, I want you to imitate me the way I imitate Jesus. And he wasn't being boastful. He was writing the word of God and he was saying, hey, I I am following Christ and if you want to follow Christ, follow me. Here's what Paul said about himself, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. I take pleasure... In infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I recoil from the words infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses. Those are the five things I pray against every day. Say, Lord, keep me out of the big five. They make it sound like you're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Let me list the kinds of things Paul meant when he said infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses. Not to criticize anybody because I also suffer from them, but he wasn't talking about seasonal allergies. Here's what he was talking about. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, in death often. We know of at least one episode in the book of Acts where Paul was stoned, drug out of a city, and left for dead whether he was actually dead or just mostly dead, he got back up and went back and wanted to go back and preach the gospel. Here we learn that this happened to him a lot. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. By stripes, he means a beating, a scourging. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. That he was writing here before his big shipwreck in the book of Acts. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, I was cold and naked. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Now we find it hard to boast in this kind of weakness. We even teach against it or we recoil from it. I was, uh, somebody sent me a portion of a, a message from a pastor's conference. It wasn't a Calvary conference, but uh, the guy leading the conference, he was about to introduce a uh, nationally famous pastor who's having some difficult times right now. He had to resign from his church, not because of a moral failure, but because of some other issues, uh, and um, it's, it's a big thing. And so the pastor who was introducing him, one of the things he said, that one of the mistakes he said this other pastor made was that he preached 50 Sundays a year without ever taking a bigger break. And I thought, and then what happened after that? and what he means is that he worked really hard preaching the gospel. He should have went on several sabbaticals and just, you know, recharged his batteries. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I think Paul would punch him in the face. <laughs> it is not a hardship to preach the gospel 50 Sundays a year. It's a joy. I'm not saying people don't get tired, they don't need R&R, those kinds of things, but if that's the worst thing that you can say, yeah, the thing that really got to him was that he, he preached 45 minutes a Sunday. I'm sorry, I can't react to that. I think Paul really would take issue with a statement like that. When you're talking, would you say that to a guy that's been bobbing up and down in the ocean, flogged you know, half a dozen times, been naked, robbed in prison? And what do you got going for you? I preached 50 Sundays. Wow. That's crazy. And so it just why am I bringing that up? Because we, you know, we want to sympathize and say, oh, that's so terrible. You must be so tired. And, so and Paul's saying, yeah, you guys, hey, come on. The real world is out there where most Christians are risking their lives every day just because they're Christians. They're being robbed and left for dead. We need to get our game faces on in this thing called serving God. And by that I mean we must wrap our heads around the fact that when I am weak, then I am strong. Whatever you're going through, God has legions of angels at his disposal. If he doesn't dispatch them, then you can be certain you don't need them to reveal true power. Your weakness is the pulpit from which his power is preached. Now, I don't even like saying that. I really don't, but it's true. Your weakness, whether it's a need or a distress or an infirmity, a persecution, for the sake of Christ, it is the pulpit from which the power of God is preached to a watching world. God could heal you, he still heals. He could save you, he could deliver you, he could do all the things that God is capable of doing But he didn't do them for Paul many times. And Paul said, so I'm going to boast in my weakness because in my weakness God is made strong. And you see this in Jesus in the garden, absolutely in control of that situation, facing a mob of maybe a thousand individuals with swords and clubs, with only two swords. And he said, I don't even need those. He was all I have to do is open my mouth and you'll fall backwards. All I have to do is open my mouth and 12... Legions of angels will be here, but God's power is going to be made perfect in my weakness as I go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? It's been calculated that Jesus in his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension fulfilled to the letter more than 300 Bible prophecies. Most of them he fulfilled without effort on his part, and by that I mean he couldn't have possibly fulfilled them even if he wanted to, like being born of a virgin. And yet one man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled 300, maybe as many as 350 prophecies. And they were fulfilled by God's providence without him ever violating the free will of the human beings involved. The Bible has become so common and so available to us here in America Most people no longer wonder at it. Most people, I could say this, you know, those people in the poll that I was talking about in our prophecy update, we should be able to go back to the percentages that say, well, maybe it's the word of God, maybe it's authoritative, maybe it's not. You say, hey, do you know that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies in his life, death, and resurrection? Do you know that every prophecy of God has come literally true to the very detail that should cause people to fall down in wonder. Instead, people say, well, I know, maybe the Bible's good for you. But, you know, I, I, I don't see it. It's because it's too commonplace. We don't understand its prophetic accuracy. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you didn't seize me. Now, this isn't spoken from bitterness, He's establishing both innocence and deity. He's pointing out his innocence by saying they could easily have seized him any time in the temple. The fact that they did not but came secretly in the middle of the night shows that they knew he was not guilty of anything. And he was pointing to his deity by mentioning the multitude and their felt need for weapons. Why so many armed men to arrest one unarmed itinerant teacher? Because he was more than a man and they knew that. Verse 56, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, and then all of his disciples forsook him and fled. Another reference to the scriptures being fulfilled. Fulfilled prophecy certainly shows the power of the word of God. Unlike any other book, the Bible makes specific predictions that must come true to the letter or else you can ignore the whole book. Then all the disciples fled. From one perspective, it got worse And worse for Jesus. Betrayed by a close friend and colleague. Arrested by those he came to help. Now totally abandoned by the other 11 guys. Now Peter and John would stop and they would follow from a distance to see what was happening. But then Peter would deny the Lord three times within his hearing. It was all according to plan. The plan of God determined before the world was ever created. The Lord, the God-man, God in human flesh, Jesus must go to the cross to die as a sacrifice and as our substitute. Then he'd arise, then he'd ascend, then he'd come again, and in that second coming, he will wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, very differently. He'll use it to destroy the enemies of God so that he can establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. In the meantime, when it comes to spiritual service and warfare, We are to wield the sword of the word the way Jesus did, the way his disciples did after Pentecost, and the way the apostle Paul did. And what that means, practically, we are to reveal God's power through our dependence upon him in our weakness. Many of you are going through deeply troubling, sorrowful trials. And it's right to pray for you, that you get out of them, that God would heal you, that God would change the situation. Nothing wrong with that. But while we wait on the Lord to see what He's going to do and why He's going to do it, your life is a pulpit from which people see His strength in your total weakness to do anything on your own. And the only weapons that you have at your disposal are spiritual weapons, but they are vastly superior to anything that the world has to offer. Keep calm, carry on, let's pray.